the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Every Sunday is a big deal. Every chance to meet around his table, every chance to pray and worship and give and sing and shout and walk through his word is a big deal, but this is an especially big deal today, and we're thankful for the opportunity to walk through it with you. Uh, This is the last of a seven uh, Sunday series called Game Changers. We've been exploring and celebrating how Jesus Christ never wanted to be one more respected teacher, one more great prophet, one more person to give you some great ideas that might help you or be a useful life hack in whatever kind of lifestyle you chose to live. Jesus wanted to be a game changer. He changed everything. And to follow Jesus means that we have to also become game changers. We are transformed by following him and we join him in transforming the world. The Three Rivers Collaborative is a group of churches that we've been working with and they say this about transforming. One last quote from them and you won't hear quotes from them for a while, but I love this one. Transformative churches, as in all churches that are really truly following Jesus, Transformative churches grasp the imperative understanding of God as a sending God and themselves as sent people. They integrate into their communities and impact their neighborhoods and cities, having been transformed by incarnating Jesus in everyday circumstances. This concept of God being a sending God is all throughout the scripture. Uh, We see God sending a bunch of things. Just a simple word search using BibleGateway.com or any other of the wonderful new technologies that make Bible study even easier than ever. You can look for the word send or sent and you'll see countless ones. God sends rain. He sends fire. He sends people. He sends angels. He sends prophets. He sends providers to help the prophets. He sends hornets and snakes, and he sends blessings, and he sends messengers. And most of all, he sent Jesus Christ. The last and greatest of the messengers was John the Baptist, and he was prophesied, as we said last week. We walked through the incredible intention. It's so hard to tell where the story actually began because there's so many steps along the way, but hundreds of years before John or Jesus was born, God spoke through the prophet Malachi and said this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then God did. He sent Jesus to rescue us. Would you send, say that out loud with me? I just, would you send that with me? Would you say that out loud with me? God sent Christ to rescue us. Now, word rescue is very significant. It means the same thing as save. But for some reason, Christians throughout the years have somehow reduced what the Bible talks about saving meaning into this tiny little fraction of what Jesus meant it about what Jesus meant by salvation. We, we, we have this idea that if we say that Jesus came to save us, that what that means is Jesus did everything that he did just so that when we die, we get to go to heaven instead of hell. And it's just a tiny little fraction of his actual vision. So we're using this word rescue. It means the same thing. But Jesus is here to rescue us from the power of sin as well as the consequences of sin. 
He's here to rescue us from the hopelessness and the fruitlessness of just trying to pursue happiness however we define it ourselves. And instead, call us into the purpose and the design that we were created to live out. He saved us from the separation from God and from each other that sin brings and instead into a renewed relationship with him and the possibility of renewed relationships with others who also choose to follow him beside us. He, changed, he saved us, he rescued us from so much into so much more. So let's say this one more time together. You ready? God sent Jesus to rescue us. Paul writes in Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you say that one out loud with me? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the concept of death, I think we all know what death is. We've all experienced it in one way or another. But in the scriptures, it's so much deeper than that. It's not just physical death. When it's talking about death, it's talking about separation. And ultimately, separation is what makes physical death so painful. We are separated from the person that we love. We don't get to be with them anymore. But there is also spiritual death. There is relational death. There is emotional death. There is eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. And as terrible as the fire and the worms and whatever other details there may be about hell is, the worst thing about it is there's no going back. God gives us so many chances, so many ways to get it right. So He's done so much through Jesus to make it possible for us to turn around at just about any given moment and change our minds one more time and actually follow him. But in hell, there's no more chances at all. It's eternal separation from God. That's why Jesus spoke about death and separation in bigger ways than just physical even when he talked about being the good shepherd, you can see this. In John 10, he says this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Shepherds, back in Jesus' day, and I believe in a lot of places it still works this way, shepherds were the physical gate of the enclosure that the sheep would sleep in. They would literally lay down their lives every night. Whatever had tried to come in to get to the sheep had to come through them. But even better, every single day they would get back up again and lead the sheep throughout the day. And we must not miss this part of the vision. Because Jesus' dream, again, was not just to die for us, but to come back to life again and lead us. That's why he said in the same passage, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He's also got a vision that was bigger than the people around him. He was talking to the Jewish people at this moment, and he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. And they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Imagine death is two arrows going out. Separation. Life that Jesus gives us is two arrows coming back in. 
Do you see that? We're separated by death in all of the ways. But life is not just not dying. The eternal life of Jesus, the eternal life that he died and rose to give us is what makes it possible for us to be one in ways that we never could be. To be reunited and changed and restored in ways that we never could be. It's a reconnection that only Jesus himself could give us. And again, that's what he's saying in this passage. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I received from my father. Once again, we see the amazing layers of intention. It's complicated, and yet it's so very focused. You guys still with me? We good on this? Hallelujah. As we go through this story, the Apostle John gives us a whole bunch of details that the other uh, Gospels don't. He basically spends chapters 13 through 17 filling in some cracks that he had uh, access to as being one of the 12. So in chapter 13, you see the Passover meal that all the other Gospels mention, but you see it opening with Jesus washing their feet. And the whole scene where Peter resists Jesus and Jesus insists and makes him wash his feet and that whole thing. It's so beautiful and it's so cool. But you see again, Jesus, this one list last night, he's telling them, I need you to love one another as I have loved you. I need you to approach life, life here on this planet differently because you follow me. In John 14, he comforts them. He spends the whole chapter just trying to comfort them. Again, this is him getting ready to go and die for us, and he's comforting them. Now, John 14 is where you see verses like this. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You see what he's doing? He's looking beyond the cross, beyond the grave, beyond whatever happens next to when he returns the next time. He's thinking about heaven. He's way ahead of the game. This is the passage. John 14 is where Jesus actually makes the famous statement, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John 15, he uses this elaborate uh, image of the vine and the branches to talk about this, this incredible connection that he was going to give us with God. That it was Jesus' own life force in the form of the Holy Spirit that would flow through us. And the fruit of that, the stuff that would grow because we were connected to him and under the leadership of the gardener, the father, uh, that, that, that is what this whole thing was about. And that is where he says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And again, please don't hear me minimizing the idea of giving our lives as in giving up our lives for someone. That's part of this. But also don't, meet, don't miss the rest of the shepherd image. When, you say, when he says to lay down your life for your friends, he's not just saying, hey, if you ever had to take a bullet, you should be willing. He's saying day after day you lay down your life for your friends, just like Jesus does. Just like he said, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily. 
and follow me. This is an ongoing thing. It's not just say, yeah, I'd be willing to take a bullet for Jesus. This is every day my life is Jesus. It's not just I'd be willing to take a bullet for my family or my friends. It's every single day my life is about helping them. I told you he was a game changer. Chapter 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And in chapter 17, he just breaks out praying. I love this. He just, he just starts praying. And they're right there. But he's praying for himself, and he's praying for them, and he's praying for us. Here's some of that prayer. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. He's talking about the disciples. They're sitting right there. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And then he starts praying about us. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, even as he's going to this ultimate separation, he's dreaming, praying, teaching, preparing his followers for the ultimate unification that's about to come. In all four Gospels, we see the suffering of Jesus portrayed. Sometimes it's a little confusing to see how the timeline works together, but all of these things are very, very clear. He goes to the garden to pray. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He is disowned and, and denied, not just by Peter, but by all of the disciples, even though John eventually turns around at some point and comes back and shows up at the cross. He's condemned to death. He's beaten, and he's mocked, and he's crucified and buried. But thank God that's not the end of the story, right? And thank God we actually get to get there. In just a few minutes, we get to go to the end of the story. But first, as we approach this suffering, I want to quote something from C.S. Lewis that just uh, has always stuck with me. He says, the devil's cause is never more in danger than when a woman, a woman, that too. Let's try this one more time. The devil's cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. And we've got something really unique here. We've got Jesus who is fully human but also fully God. But the fully human part of him really went through the suffering just like it would be if it was one of us. And the fully God part of him went through it more, even more, because to be separate from God for any amount of time in any sense whatsoever is to actually be separated from part of himself. Let's say this out loud together. Jesus suffered, died, and rose to set us free. One more time, think about that last line. He didn't just die and rise again so that we could go to heaven when we die. That's part of it. He died, say it with me. 
Jesus suffered, died, and rose to set us free. Gethsemane actually means in Hebrew um, something like olive press. It refers to the process of the oil being squeezed out of the olives. It was a garden that uh, then and even still now people go to meditate and be alone with Jesus. He actually did this in several occasions. He went there quite a bit, but this night he went there to be alone and to pray. And this is where I believe some of his worst suffering actually really began. This is the first time that we see Jesus praying in a very desperate way, a pleading way. How many of you have ever prayed in a pleading, desperate way, though? You know what it feels like. So does Jesus. He was tempted and went through every single thing that we go through, and he knows what it feels like, and yet somehow miraculously stayed perfect. And this is Jesus passionately begging God for something, and for the first time, and the only time as far as I know, God says no. Has this ever happened to you? Can you imagine? We know what it feels like. But this is Jesus. He's part of the Godhead. And for once, he's still 100% on board. Don't miss that. He's not begging God to change the plan at the last minute. He got locked in a week ago. He knows the button has been pressed. He's on the ride. And yet he's also being very real with God. But right this minute, Father, I'm scared to death. Right this minute, this is agony. Right this minute, are you sure there's no way? sure and then he's mocked he's beaten he's slapped he's physically verbally and in every other possible way just abused the scourging that they gave Jesus it killed a lot of people I'm sure at some point it's available everywhere you can watch it on YouTube somewhere but what you need to know for sure is this the whips that they used to beat him were not just some sort of like a little strap or your daddy's belt or something they were designed to every single hit would lock in and rip part of the flesh off a lot of people actually died just from the scourging and right after that is when he has to go carry a cross and actually go to the cross and i believe personally that them mocking him and calling him king and mock worshiping him and spitting in his face and the crown of thorns and all of that probably honestly hurt worse than the physical pain and then it just keeps going now he goes to the cross the word excruciating actually comes from the latin word for crucifixion it's probably the most painful death there is if there's a few others i don't want to imagine what they are but it was the most intentional strategically painful death that was ever created. To breathe on the cross, you may have heard this, but just in case, I think it's very significant when we look at the things he said from it. To breathe on the cross, as soon as you were in position, hanging by nails, mind you, nails in your feet and nails in your wrists, probably, or hands, perhaps. But if they put it here, it would have just ripped out. And the word in the Greek that says we translate hands basically means anywhere from your elbow down. So most people believe today that the nails were actually right here. Anyway, when you're hanging in that position, medically what happens is you cannot breathe. Your ribs are ripped apart. 
your heart and every part of you on the inside just starts to strain. It instantly goes to a, a, a fear of asphyxiation. It's the same experience as drowning, and you literally start to drown in your own blood and body fluids. To breathe at all, you have to pull and push up to get the breath. To exhale, you have to do the same thing. Mind you, he's got the raw back going up and down, and I guarantee you they didn't sand that cross. It's one thing to see Jesus just hanging there, but to understand that for all the hours that he was up there, he was literally pulling himself up just to take another breath and listen to the things he said from the cross. Listen where his focus was. He wasn't saying like, man, this hurts so bad. He wasn't still just screaming or saying, God, can we change our plan yet? He was saying things like this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. Making sure his mom's going to be taken care of after he's gone. I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I think one of the ones that's probably the most misunderstood is the last one. When he said at one point, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And don't misunderstand me. I, I do believe that in this moment that he's feeling separated from God. I do believe that when he is carrying all the sins of the world, and I'm sure you've heard this before, I do believe this, there's no way God could look at that at that moment. And there was a very real separation with God. But the more I've studied this the last several years, what I really believe is what he was doing was quoting the first line of Psalm 22, including the people in, this is it, guys. This is it. This is the moment that's been prophesied the whole time. That was a very common way that rabbis would teach their people. And I believe that more than just screaming that out in agony, I think Jesus was intentionally also teaching us something. Because here's how Psalm 22.1 starts out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And as it goes on, listen to this. This is hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Reading from Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by all the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. All my bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried up. By the way, I think I forgot to say this earlier. Another thing that happens almost instantly in crucifixion is your shoulders and your elbows and your wrists are all dislocated, which makes the whole thing even more painful. All my bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried up. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That's Psalm 22, y'all. Nobody who heard that psalm all those years ago could have ever imagined what happened. His own disciples couldn't imagine what happened. And yet it was there all along. 
They also couldn't imagine all the crazy stuff that happened. And as you read this story, and I hope you reread it, if not in your guide, the sermon outline, that's also a Bible study as always, I hope you go back and read these passages. Just let it flow straight out of the scriptures. But there's so much going on here that if I were writing the story and wanted people to believe it, I never would have included because it's craziness. But it's important to remember the reason it's all in there is because it really happened and this was proof to the people who the, that were eyewitnesses. They were like, yep, I saw that. Yep, here we go. For example, the, as Jesus is dying, Matthew tells us that the tombs nearby broke open and 500 people came back to life. What a crazy claim, unless there were 500 people walking around Jerusalem. Everybody's like, Uncle Abner, are you serious? How did you get back here? That really happened. Jesus coming back to life, what a crazy outlandish claim, unless it happened. They'd already given up. Why would they come back? There's angels that talk to women at a prison. Uh, not a prison, at the tomb. Angels talk to women at the tomb. Peter and John uh, get to go inside the tomb, get to see the empty tomb. And, and Jesus ends up talking to all of them. There's the torn curtain at the temple. Why would somebody make that stuff up? They didn't. It was just something you can't explain other than it was miraculous and it happened as Jesus died. The stone that got rolled away. The conversations that Jesus had with each individual person and the two on the road to Emmaus. All of the 500 plus people that Jesus appeared to after he had come back to life. All of this is in there because it was real. All of this is in there because they knew that eyewitnesses were still living when these documents were first written and they could confirm all that craziness, all the stuff that sounds so insane and impossible to us was the stuff that would make it believable to the people of the first generation. They never could understand it, but they saw it. They experienced it. But you know what should not have surprised them? that Jesus would send them out. The Great Commission shouldn't have surprised anybody because he had always said things like this, come follow me and I will send you out to become fishers of men. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send, therefore, workers into the harvest fields. When people are hungry, he'd say things like, you give them something to eat and then do a miracle so it was possible for them to actually do it. But he made them serve them. He sent them on mission trips. He himself led a mission trip to Samaria. Is this making sense? Sound familiar? This should not have surprised him that the story of his life on earth not only doesn't end at the cross, it doesn't end at the empty tomb. It ends with him sending them out and sending us out to be game changers and to change this world around us. This first one, you don't have to say it out loud, but this is just, this is the last little section we're wrapping up here is this. If we now are the body of Christ, we should expect to experience the same kind of stuff that Jesus experienced in his physical body. We should not be surprised if there's suffering. We should not be surprised if we don't have all of the amenities that we expect that all humans should have. Jesus had none of those things. We should not expect that we'd be immune from temptation. Jesus experienced all of it. 
We should not expect any of the things that we sometimes expect from God that if I just follow Jesus, his whole goal is to make it really easy on me now and then let me go to heaven when I die. That's just not how it works. We should also not expect that he's going to keep empowering whatever we think he should empower. We shouldn't expect that he's going to change stuff. Romans 6 starts out like this. What shall we say then? And Paul's talking in light of everything that Jesus did, everything we've just been talking about. But he says, so what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. Christ separated us from sin. He separated us from the power of sin. He separated us from slavery to sin. It's a disconnect. It's still there, but it's separated from us now because of what Jesus did. He broke its power. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death I don't know what church background you came from or what you've been taught about baptism, and I'm not trying to get into that, but this is, this is what the Bible actually says it means. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see that? We die, we're buried, we're raised to a new life. That's what Jesus died and rose and sends us out to share with others. That's the transformation that he did all that to allow, to make possible. That's the transformation he expects from us. And my question to you today is, if Jesus came to rescue us, what do you need him to rescue you from today? If you've never given your life to Jesus, this would be a wonderful day to do it. If you've been running for a while, this is a great time to come back. If there's a specific sin in your life and you know it's wrong, but you've been justifying it, this is a wonderful time for you to just get that right with God. He came to rescue you, to set you free from that, to separate you from that sin, to separate it from its power over you, to separate you from all of the pain that will come out of it if you decide to spend the rest of your life living by your rules instead of his. Maybe it's a suffering thing that you're going through right now and you feel like God has abandoned you. He's forsaken you. I guarantee you he has not, even though even Jesus knows what it feels like to feel that way. Jesus suffered and died and rose to set us free. What do you need set free from this morning? Maybe it's free from something that's been holding you back. Maybe it's free to do something that you know he's been telling you to do for a long time. And for some reason, you just don't feel like you can. Let me tell you. The Jesus of the resurrection has enough power to get you free from anything and free to go to something. Can I get another amen for that? The Jesus who came back to life from death 
has the power to break you free from anything and to set you free from anything and to set you free to do anything he has told you to do and empowered you to do with the power of his Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. So if we are the body of Christ, it's time that we embrace this more than ever before. It's time that we agree we're going to die to ourselves. We're going to take up our cross daily to follow him. And whatever choice you need to make today, you need to make that because he's calling you to be a game changer, every one of you. He's calling you to not only be transformed, but to join him in his plan to transform the world around us. I'm going to go and stand at the back. We're actually going to sing two songs today, just as worship. If, all, if everything's great between you and God, hallelujah, just worship. If you've got business to take care of, come to the back. We'll take care of the business. We'll see what needs to happen after that. But let's worship him. Let's thank him in freedom. Are you with me? Let's do it.